Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Well, you may be seated. And if you are in uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, you are released to go to your classes uh, at this time. I uh, just wanted to say welcome uh, to Harvest. Welcome to those of you who are at home. I know there's a bunch who are at home with illness. Found out during the prayer meeting this morning, like half my small group is sick because uh, my phone was blowing up as we were praying. So we prayed some more uh, for them. But so glad that you're joining from home and so glad that you all are here. We'll open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Matthew as we've already been in, as read, or, or as uh, Wes has already read uh, the text for us as we've worshipped this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And if you remember from the context where we started last week in chapter 4, Jesus has begun his earthly ministry. He called, uh, he, was, he was preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called his disciples and he's ministering to the great crowds. He's healing many. Uh, people are coming from far and wide and his ministry is growing. And then in verse 25, it says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And as, as uh, chapter five begins, it says that Jesus seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and opening his mouth and taught them saying, so, so Jesus sees all these crowds, he sees all these people, and everyone's coming. And remember, uh, at that time, the disciples and those generally in the nation of Israel were expecting a Savior to come, but they were expecting someone to come and establish an earthly kingdom. So they were expecting someone to come in and defeat Rome and raise up a revolt. And so all these crowds are around. They're coming to Jesus, and Jesus wants to instruct his disciples from the beginning. And he does this time and again throughout the Gospels that the kingdom that has come is not one that we're going to establish in this world. We are looking to be like and live in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus comes and he sits down. So he's not standing, like beating, you know, the pulpit, as it were, telling people, no, you're going to have to do this, then there's something else you want to do. And no, he's sitting down to, to instruct them. He sits down because he wants them to rethink their lives. Rethink their lives in light of the kingdom, in light of his kingdom. And as Christians in the West, we can often kind of come to a text like the Sermon on the Mount, which over the, the next three chapters, as we go through this over the next number of months, there are some 50 commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're like, well, we got to do that. we got to do something. We, we, we're about achievement. I know I can get Y if I start with doing X. If I do this, I'm going to get that, so I need to make sure I do it. We want to do it right. We want to do it with excellence, so we got we to do it. But Jesus is not laying out like some plan of some arduous task, like we're going to all compete in the, the American Ninja Warrior, 
right? I don't know if you know about that show. You don't have to know about that show, but to, to know kind of how this goes, like this American Ninja Warrior show is, is basically an obstacle course, a ridiculous obstacle course that only elite athletes can finish. In fact, elite athletes fail consistently when they, when they navigate these things. And, and these obstacle courses, they tend to be like over bodies of water that they've created because they fall from great heights and they fail. And we can feel like as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's what we have to do. And well, maybe the really, as we look at all these things that have to happen, really only like the elite Christians, like the people who are really gifted, they can do all that stuff. But you know what? I'm super discouraged because it seems like even the ones that are super gifted, they can't make it. That's not what Jesus is teaching. No, he's seated and he's inviting them to look at the kingdom, to rethink their lives in light of the kingdom. Yes. Is he challenging them to grow? Yes. Is he, are they going to be challenged in their walk? For sure. But he invites them to experience blessing, the blessing of being a part of his kingdom. And so he begins with blessing. And this section is known as the Beatitudes because each verse starts with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It goes down. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, 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 blessed. So we're talking about, we're going to rethink what blessing looks like. But as we look at these Beatitudes, we want to understand these aren't a description of personality traits. This is not like a list of like, oh, I'm going to find myself in the list. Yeah, I'm a little stronger here, so I guess these are the blessings that I get. But the people that are super kind and merciful, well, they, they're going to receive that blessing. And no, this is not a list of personality traits that fit certain people and not others. This is a description of everyone who finds themselves in the family of God. That's what this is a description of. This should show up in the life of every Christian. And the Beatitudes invite us to rethink what blessing is. And now, as, as I first came to the Beatitudes, the first time as a new Christian, I had someone teach me uh, the kind of the meaning of a root Greek word. And I thought that was really cool. Like, blessed means happy is what I saw. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I've learned, I've learned the meaning of a Greek word. And happy, it means happy. And I would start to read these and go, happy are the poor in spirit. And happy are those who mourn. And, and as I read, happy, happy just didn't seem to fit. Like, when I read the blessings, I'm like, that doesn't just evoke happiness in me. And though there is a nuance from that original word when it talks about happiness, the blessing that it's talked about here is it's not the happiness that we understand in our, in our culture. It doesn't mean it the way that we understand it in our culture. Blessing doesn't mean, in this context, God's going to meet all of my physical needs. Now, does God meet our physical needs? Yes, he does meet our physical needs. He does provide for us. He cares for his children. He provided manna for the people of Israel when they were walking in the wilderness. So God does do that, but that's not what the blessing is that's described here. Because happiness is a feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Jesus is declaring this, that we are approved by 
God. That's what the declaration is. Approved by God because of what Jesus has done. Blessedness indicates the smile of God. The state that you are in is because God's favor is upon you. Jesus is saying, abide in me and your life will grow to look more and more like this and you will become more and more aware of the blessing that comes that you did not deserve because of the state you're in and how I've changed you. So just abide in me. And everything that we do flows out of that intimate relationship of the one who was seated having a conversation with his disciples. The Beatitudes are a declaration and a promise announced to those who were unsuspecting and undeserving. So we can rethink blessing in that way. So let's, let's look at some of these Beatitudes. So the first one is in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus blesses self-acknowledged weakness. Now, society in our age, but society in every age, champions self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression. You hear the phrase, believe in yourself. Or you might think that the beatitude should be, blessed is the man who becomes rich. Blessed is the woman who becomes popular. Blessed is the one who becomes satisfied with themselves. And we even admire when folks get to a place of independence, even, even little kids, Right? We, we train kids to tie their shoes. Right, It's helpful for them to know how to tie their shoes. But there's a time as in our training when we train them to tie their shoes that they go, no, I don't need your help. If you're a parent, you've experienced that. If you worked in Harvest Kids, you've experienced that. No, I don't need your help. I can do this myself. And as a parent, when you get over the fact that you are no longer being depended on and you get over yourself, you start to go, yes. That's what I want. I want them to be able to do this for themselves, by themselves. This is great, and we, we champion that independence. And yes, it is good. I think it's good for our kids to be able to tie their shoes and then eventually live on their own. So that's not wrong. But yet we, we admire this, like, do it on our own. We admire the rags-to-riches stories. Someone who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and they've, they've succeeded, they've overcome all the odds. And what it does in us, it tends to have us prove our worthiness in every situation that we're in, rather than be honest about our weakness. Rather than be honest about our failures. When we look at ourselves, we tend to compare ourselves with others so that we can kind of tip the scales and show, yep, I'm better than them. That's the temptation. That's what we're encouraged to do. But that's not what's being 
called here, blessed are the poor in spirit. But there's also another pendulum that can swing the other way that says that blessed are the poor in spirit means that we need to be nervous or weak. We need to lack courage. We should lack confidence. In fact, if we have too much confidence, you should really suppress that confidence because you shouldn't be confident because you should be poor in spirit. But again, these, these are not personality traits. Poor in spirit is the heart condition of someone who understands that God is holy and we are not. God is holy other than us and we are not. Poor in spirit is when is when we come to the place where we realize we are completely spiritually bankrupt before God, knowing our spiritual neediness, knowing there's a gap between God as the creator and us as his creatures. There's a significant gap. There's a chasm that's between us. Rather than being self-sufficient, we realize that we are dependent. That's what poor in spirit is talking about. And it's displayed uh, in a description that Jesus, when he talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke 18. If you don't know, like a, a Pharisee is someone who was a, a religious elite, uh, a religious individual who, you know, was kind of looked at as someone who should be doing the right thing and, and living godly and living to honor God. And then someone who was a tax collector was often looked down upon because they were often unscrupulous. They often stole. They were seen as dishonest and, and people despised them because they were wealthy off of the, the means of others. So that's kind of the contrast. And then here's the story that Jesus tells. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the heart. One who realizes they have a great need. John Wesley, when he talked about the poor in spirit, said this. He said, this is one who has a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin, which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. That's what poor in spirit is. Poor in spirit is is described well by the verse in Rock of Ages that says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the condition that our heart needs 
to be as we come to Christ. There's nothing that we bring. You don't have to get yourself all fixed up to come to Christ. No, you come because you have nothing. He has everything. And if you've never trusted in Christ, that's the posture. Jesus is not a life insurance policy. Jesus is not someone we come and we acknowledge just just in case he's real. And when I get to heaven, I want to make sure that I can get in. No, Jesus, Jesus calls us to see us for how we truly are needy and needing of him. And so I'd invite you, if you've never trusted in Christ, to come humbly. You don't have to come with anything. You can't come with anything. But you can receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus if you trust in him. And that's the reward for those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus blesses self-acknowledged weakness. When we come and we acknowledge we have nothing, he blesses us with everything, with everything, with life, with eternity, with him. And we even experience now the blessings of being part of the kingdom. So when we acknowledge our bankruptcy by confessing our spiritual poverty, we get the blessing of membership in the kingdom. Now, some of you have heard this, but you still kind of like, no, there's, I still got to do something. I still, there's, you can't get something for nothing. You, you can't tell me that. Someone, so they're, they're, this costs something. I must have to do something. It, it did cost someone something. It did cost. It cost Jesus his life. But it doesn't cost you. We must remember this, this reward is not one that we deserved. So we come with complete absence of pride, complete absence of self-assurance. We don't come with self-reliance. We don't come pulling up our bootstraps, which means the blessing is, is that we don't have to rely on our financial status. We don't have to rely on our nationality. We don't have to rely on some kind of image that we have to display before others. We don't have to rely on a particular temperament that we have to try to be like. We don't have to make ourselves look good. We are blessed when we humbly come. That's why we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And even though we need to be aware of this chasm, even though we need to be, have a posture of that, in so doing, we need to look to Jesus. Remember the one who's seated, who's talking, who's sharing and declaring this blessing. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He didn't look at this chasm between his unrighteousness and righteousness because he was perfect, but he became poor for us so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In Philippians 2, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
And Jesus said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So we can even look to Christ as we look to poor in spirit, because Jesus said, I can't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I'm completely dependent on the Father, so we can look to Christ as we seek to be poor in spirit. And as we know and are familiar with what Jesus says in John 15, that we're to abide in him. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So so that's how we do this. This poor in spirit, we, we come knowing we're needy and we receive the blessing of Christ's worthiness. We look to Jesus and we can acknowledge our neediness in light of his worthiness. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the second one. Unfortunately, we're not going to get through all of them today, but the second one says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That doesn't make sense. Even the first half doesn't seem to make sense. I don't have anybody else telling me, blessed are those who mourn. Like, mourning does not seem to be blessing, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, we need to understand a few things. Some have interpreted this passage to mean that we should run from anything that is enjoyable. We should, we should be like the blandest people in the world. That's what some would say. Like, we shouldn't enjoy anything. We should become a monk and live someplace far away and never talk to other people and never enjoy the pleasures of this world. Even though I, I don't get why some people think about monks that way, because they're the ones that like develop cheese and all kinds of crazy cool stuff because they couldn't take it. They just kind of developed it in the, back, in the back room, apparently. But no, it, it, it's, not, it, it's not a call. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the grim and cheerless Christians. That's not what he's saying. Blessed are the boring and gloomy and sad. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because there is a place, obviously, to pursue godliness and in, in, in joy. Right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Or Solomon in Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. Laughter is important. It's even, I think, essential in our Christian experience. But here's the thing. The world despises sorrow. I mean, they want to acknowledge it, and some people want to comfort it, but, but the, the message isn't, hey, like, like, learn how to find this to be good. Because we hear messages like the song that was popular when I was growing up, don't worry, be happy. That's the message. Don't worry. You know, it's bad. Just be happy. Be happy. That's the thing we should do. That's the thing we should exalt. In fact, we should do everything we can to avoid troubles, maximize entertainment, and avoid suffering at all costs. That, that's what, what we're doing. 
You all have seen it in different aspects of our society. But again, this is not just from our society. I think every society from ages past wants to, in some way, avoid suffering. And as Christians, we can get caught up in all that. We can. Food, entertainment, vacations, our diet, our exercise regimen. We can do whatever we can to avoid remembering that we live in a fallen world that has been devastated by sin. Now, I'm not saying it's sin to go on a vacation or to have a good exercise plan. or That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the, the culture wants you to run past reality because we often try to avoid the devastating effects of sin and what it's done in our lives and in the lives of others and, and miss this blessing of mourning. Because mourning is the right step after being poor in spirit. So even, even this list of, of beatitudes, they aren't just like some haphazard concoction of Wisdom, like when you're reading Proverbs, you're like, oh, I just read this proverb, but the one right after it doesn't seem to, to fit the other one. They're not just kind of slapped in here together. There is a progression of what Jesus is sharing. Like they're starting of realizing there's a separation between you and God. And then there's just the reality where we grieve over the fact that it's our sin that has put us in this place of separation from God. Mourning is the right emotional response to the understanding of our spiritual brokenness. It's, it's the right response. Last week, we talked, about, we talked about repentance. Now, repentance primarily is talking about the, the day when we do repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, when we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ and where God reorients our lives to go in a different direction. But there's something healthy about not just grief at that time, but grief over our sin, contrition over our sin, not running past that. I mean, there's a good example in the Old Testament of kind of how this can look in two different ways. If you think about King Saul, King Saul felt bad about things that he did because he got caught. But David... When David was confronted with his sin, he mourned because he realized he had sinned against God. And friends, I, I would encourage you, if, if you've never been in a place where you have grieved over your sin, you may consider, have I, have I really truly understood that I, there's a chasm that lays between me and God? Have I really understood what, what that means? Because it should cause us to grieve and evaluate and come, come to Christ because those who mourn, they shall be comforted. This remorse over sin is to be a regular part of our Christian experience until we see Jesus face to face because we aren't perfect. Just look around. You don't have to point the finger at anybody, but... We're not perfect, right? And 
as Western Christians, we, we, we do need to, to come to a place of, of having a healthy sorrow over sin, of having healthy confession. As Daniel Henderson wrote, said, confession means agreeing with God about our sin and failure and to align with his person, purpose, and plan. So confession isn't just like, oh, I feel bad. No, it's saying, no, I'm, I'm being conformed to the image of a son. I'm, I realize this isn't good, and I can confess that sin and be forgiven of that sin, and I want to be directing my heart and my life towards God and his purposes in my life. And if we don't have this healthy view of sorrow, of contrition, we can Think lightly of sin over time. We can excuse sin over time. We can even justify sin over time. So it can be healthy, but there's a promise. Because the call here, again, isn't for us to just look down, look inward, feel bad about ourselves all the time. I need to whip myself on the back. No, there's a declaration here that those who mourn, they will be comforted. And I remember experiencing this for the first time when I was in college, I had gone to a retreat, and at that retreat, during a time of worship, after the word had been preached, I had come to a realization the Holy Spirit had brought conviction on my life and had shown me the place that my heart was in. And I was grieved about that, but I had learned about the joy and the gift that Christ had given and that I was forgiven. And I remember getting in the car after that retreat, and I was in my roommate's car because I didn't have a car, and I was driving to see my girlfriend, which is now my wife, but at the time, we were just dating, and I wanted to tell her about that. And as I'm driving, I had to pull over to the side of the road because I couldn't see, because I was crying so much. I couldn't see through the tears, and I had to stop because I was overwhelmed by the sorrow the grief over my sin, but I had this crazy thing going on at the same time, I'm experiencing this joy of knowing that I have been forgiven of that sin. I was experiencing the mourning and the comfort at the same time. My body didn't know what to do, and so I just sat there and I wept. And I don't know how long I wept until I got to the place where the tears had slowed enough that I could see to drive. So there is this, this paradox almost that happens. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the comfort is this, friends, that your sins are forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once you are cleansed, you don't have to sit in the sorrow of that sin because Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not about wallowing in your sin. We have a healthy grief over our sin, but then we live in the victory knowing that we are forgiven. We don't have to put something on our backpack and like walk around like, oh, whoa, it's me. No, we are forgiven. And this is the experience of Christians throughout the ages. Chuck Colson has gone home to be with the Lord who started the, the ministry prison fellowship. He described this about his experience of his conversion. He said, that night when I sat alone at my car, my own sin, not just dirty politics, 
but the hated and evil, the hatred and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. And worst of all, I could not escape. In those moments of clarity, I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. Right mourning is good because it drives us into the arms of Jesus. Friends, our experience when we think about mourning is to be like that of the prodigal. The prodigal son that's described in Luke 15. This is what his experience. I'm going to read it to you. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the picture of what Jesus is talking about. When you come mourning, when you come aware that you are poor in spirit, you're aware of the chasm and you're grieving over that. Even even if you find yourself, friends, in that place where you just feel so distant from God and there, there's just this glimmer of hope, you're aware of your neediness and you're aware, I, you, you feel like, well, I, I don't think I can come because you're just far more aware of that and you're, you're grieving over that and you, you just barely acknowledge it and you feel a long way off and you're like, I, I'm never going to get there. You don't have to get there because the father came running and the father comes running because there's a declaration. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So even if you are in a dark place, place where it's hard for you to kind of have faith that these things are true, even though you may have heard them time and again. The Father wants you to know you are forgiven. The Father wants you to know when when he looks upon you, if you've trusted in Christ, when he looks upon you, he sees the perfection of his son, and so he's going to bring you the blessings that come, the blessings that were to be for his son, they become yours. So be comforted, brothers and sisters. That's the picture. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we're not, we're not going to be able to get through these today. We're going to do this over the next number of weeks. But before we kind of finish, even though even though this particular verse talking about those who mourn is, is really directing us to the grief over our sin, there, there is a reality of those who are mourning over the difficulties that you are facing. The real struggle of living in a fallen world. Some of you are here and you're dealing with chronic pain. 
Some of you are here or listening in, and you're dealing with the effects of cancer or some other illness or lingering effects from treatment gone wrong or hoped to have gone well. Some of you are here and dealing with that hidden struggle called depression that other people don't see on the outside, but you experience maybe to varying degrees and it just weights you down. I want you to know the Bible does not paint a picture that mourning is a blessed experience. Not to Not to think that these hard things are a blessed experience. Though God may use it for good, suffering is not good. It's not what God intended. If you look back at Genesis 1, 2, before the fall, there was not meant to be death, and there's not meant to be this suffering. And we look to the day when we will be with Jesus in his kingdom, that suffering is going to be gone. That's what's wonderful about that. But we are in the already and the not yet. And and for others of us, we are walking with some who are experiencing hurt and pain. And we don't want to minimize that with pithy scriptures. The Bible's never meant to be like two uh, pills that someone takes at night and then they feel better in the morning. Remember the people who Jesus is speaking to. They have all kinds of reasons to mourn, whether it's because of oppression of the government or lack of medical care or the fact that they didn't have money to eat or the fact that just every single day most people barely got a little bit of food on the table. They had all kinds of reasons to mourn. And the answer to mourning, whether it's mourning over sin or mourning over the brokenness of this world that seems to be endlessly afflicting us is to go to the one who's speaking. Not in an anecdotal way, but we come to the one who is speaking because the prophet Isaiah talks to us about him and says this in Isaiah 53. He says, for he grew up before him like a plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So in the midst of your suffering, you can know there's one who understands. There is someone who understands that you can look to. And your suffering may not be alleviated in that moment. It may not be gone. I know for certain there's going to be one day where it will be gone. But in the time that we have now, we can look to Christ. 
Because it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on. There's so much more. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So that you could be a part of his family so that you could experience the blessings that are declared he that are declared here in this text because when he went to the cross he said something powerful he said it is finished your sins are paid for if you've trusted in Christ you're a part of his family and you get to experience the blessings that he talks about here and he's at work in you, conforming you to his image. Let's pray. Father, being poor in spirit and mourning are categories that I confess I don't like to run to. I want, I want to move on to some of the more exciting beatitudes or some of the ones I feel like I can do something to change. Lord, I confess that I need you and we need you. And Lord, no matter where we are at, I pray, God, that we would see the face of Jesus, that we would see his face as we consider these things, even in the midst of us seeing the chasm that laid between us, Jesus bridged that chasm. When we, when we experience conviction from the Holy Spirit and experience sadness over our sin and mourning and needing to confess that, we need to know we are forgiven of our sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And when we find ourselves in the place of, of just hurting, of not knowing how to think, Father, would you remind us that there's one that we're to look to, the one that gives us strength, the one that sent his spirit, the one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and his name is Jesus. So direct our gaze this morning to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.